Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowe, and with me today, we have Robin Barr. Gabagool. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, boy. We also have Bill Graham. What are you, a stupido? God, what the fuck is happening? This is like, <laughs> somehow we got through Luca without being as offensive to Italians as we have been right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is not boding well. Uh, we also have with us today a special guest to talk about the many saints of Newark. It's Danny Feinberg. Oh! Hey, whoa, hey, guy, I, was, I, I, wasn't told, I wasn't told to have an Italian stereotype handy, so that was the best I could come up with on short notes. It's a me, Mario. <laughs> it's a me, Mario. <laughs> hey, hey, what Hello. you doing? It's Mario over here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Oh boy! Uh, this you? is making me miss Queens. <laughs> I'm already missing Queens. Oh Christ! All right. Well, this is a rough start, but we're just going to plow right through it. We are here again, as I said, to talk about the Many Saints of Newark, which is a new film that's in theaters and on HBO Max. I keep wanting to say go, and I don't know why. And uh, our guest today is, in fact, Daniel Feinberg. <laughs> uh, Daniel, would you like to introduce yourself to our uh, studio audience? Uh, sure, I'm. I'm very excited to be on a a movie review podcast because, under normal circumstances, I'm the chief TV critic at the Hollywood Reporter and uh, co-host of the TV's Top Five podcast at the Hollywood Reporter with the great Leslie Goldberg. Woo! Woo! <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. All right. And um. Yeah. We're, we're the reason we have a TV expert with us today uh, is because we're going to be talking about Twin Peaks: The Return. Uh. No, it's because. <laughs> I thought that was a film. Oh, my God. That's what I heard. But I just wanted to, you know, we're not going to get into it. Um, <laughs> we're here to talk about The Many States of Newark, which is a movie, but that is airing on a streaming service that is mastheaded by a uh, TV network, though HBO would have to uh, remind us that it is not TV. It's HBO. Um, and it is their uh, show. It's a prequel to their show, The Sopranos. So there's a lot of cross-pollination here. And so Daniel's here to help us sort through all of that. Uh, before we get into that, though, all the usual stuff, um, you can find us on Twitter at Film State Show. Facebook. Is Facebook back? Yes. Yes, it's back. Oh, that's a shame. You can find us on oh my God, Facebook what a and Instagram. I, I missed Instagram. Facebook, I was like, what do you mean? Is that still around? We're still doing Facebook? Facebook Messenger was down. How am I supposed to get my updates from all my friends, my friends? Fucking text them. Don't you friend. text people? Mm, not these people. I don't. <laughs> I, I feel like we need to apply into that more to understand what you mean but uh we don't know just like every friendship has its own communications mode yeah, and yeah, yeah, not yeah. these particular friends or i'm not texty with them i god you know we we promised we wouldn't get into a lot of tangents but now i just want to know like is there like a, a correlation between intimacy we, we, and we can, and which can, social media network you use like is texts for best friends facebook no. for like kind of acquaintances and instagrams for randos no, it just depends on like the most convenient way you interact with people. So if I'm if I'm yep. 
spending a lot of time with someone, it's actually easier for me to type than it is for me to text. So it's actually indicates maybe more intimacy. Interesting. All right. Anyway, now, now that we've wasted a good minute and a half on that, I can't remember what I was talking about. Uh, email us, podcastthefilmstage.com. And of course, go to patreon.com slash show to give us your money and get access to our Slack channel, which is, in fact, another way to communicate with people. That is uh, not all the ones that we've already talked about. And uh, we're brought to you by Mubi, the curated streaming service that showcases exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a brand new film. Uh, it could be a Thomas classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece. Either way, it's guaranteed to be a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of. And there will always be something new for you to discover. Uh, yesterday, the uh, exclusive movie spotlight was swimming out till the sea turns blue. One of the defining voices of the international art house, Jia Zhangqi has become the foremost chronicler of China's rapid transformation through his form-bending cinema. This beautifully shot documentary uses the art of oral history to turn personal memory and literature into the story of a nation. Uh, that is one of the many pieces of film that they have for you to check out. You should go and see what they've got. And as I said earlier, if you would like a free 30-day trial to see what movie is all about, you could do that by going to movie.com slash filmstage. Again, that is M-U-B-I dot com slash filmstage. And that's that. Um, how's everyone doing? Do we have anything to talk about before we get into our movie review? Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to take that as a no. As I not, said. Not much interesting stuff happened. No, I feel like uh, that's not true. I feel like a lot has happened, but also I feel like uh, it's nothing that we need to talk about. And also I can't remember any of it off the top of my head, so I might just be exactly. wrong. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every every week is a nightmare. Anyway, we're here to talk about the many saints of Newark. Wow, I said that really weird. <laughs> And this is uh, a film from director Alan Taylor, uh, written by uh, David Chase and Lawrence Connor. And um, it stars Alessandro Nivolo and Leslie Odom Jr., amongst uh, a lot of other great people. But I would say that those two are, in fact, the leads. But I guess our conversation about that will play into our feelings about the movie. So uh, before we get into it, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer. When I was a kid, guys like me were brought up to follow codes. Hey, jerk off. What'd you say? What? Antonio Soprano. I wonder if I can talk to you alone for a moment, Mrs. Soprano. On the basis of the Sanford Binet, he's high IQ. All right, that is a part of the trailer for The Many Saints of Newark, which is out now in theaters and on HBO Max. Uh, again, this is a prequel to the television series The Sopranos, and uh, we are here to talk about it. So I don't, you know, I just, I feel like there's going to be like levels of spoilerhood here. Um, I guess we should just say up front that like we're probably going to spoil the television show. And uh, we'll try not to spoil the movie until like a couple minutes into this podcast. So just be aware of that. Uh, let's begin with our general basic nutshell thoughts. And we begin with our guest, Daniel Feinberg. This is me asking you directly what your opinion of The Many Saints of Newark is. It's such a an odd movie to try to give an opinion to because 
I, I feel as if I like many, many, many pieces of this movie and I don't have a clue what the movie actually is as a standalone entity. And so it's hard for me to say, oh, I love the movie because I just don't know what the movie is. It's a combination of Easter eggs and fan service and these really wonderful little moments. And then sometimes you feel like you've missed an entire season of plot lines because they just wanted to move on to the next thing and they weren't really necessarily making a movie or if they were making a movie, they didn't necessarily know how to make a movie. So my bottom line review is, I'm not really sure what my bottom line review is. I found it entertaining. I found it even moving occasionally and I found it a compliment with an I. I think that's the right compliment, maybe with <laughs> Let's go with an E there uh, to The Sopranos. And, you know, Sopranos is a great show, a show I love. I could have survived without seeing this thing, but I was okay with it. But I kind of, to some degree, wish that they just made a Sopranos prequel television series if that was what they really wanted to do. All right. And I, sh- I guess I should also like, you know, start these these uh, introductory thoughts by asking uh, y- you've seen The Sopranos, I assume, and have enjoyed it as a television show. I-, I am indeed a professional television critic and I have indeed seen The Sopranos. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. You had you had to turn in your DVD box sets and have them like, you know, punch carded before you were okay. able to get your, your TV critics license. I mean, it's basically a part of the reason why I'm not offended by the idea of a vaccine passport, because I've been getting into events with my Sopranos passport basically for 20 years. So. Right. There's a guy at the, the the front door of everything, and he either asks you a question about the wire or the Sopranos, and you have to answer correctly. I, I believe that anyone coming to any of our finer television critics events uh, probably would have no trouble fulfilling either of those two mandates. Precisely. All right. Well, let's see what the others among us thought. Bill Graham, first of all, have you seen and enjoyed the entirety of The Sopranos television show? And what were your thoughts on The Many Saints of Newark? Uh, I watched all of four seasons of The Sopranos, and then I went off to college and I didn't have HBO, so I didn't watch The Sopranos because that was back in a time when uh, if you missed it, you missed it, and uh, you would have to try and catch reruns, so uh, unfortunately, I uh, did not catch it. Uh, I did catch like the last two episodes or so i think i was on break or something like that uh so i've seen the finale which doesn't mean a whole lot uh i did kind of tire on the series as a whole um that's just kind of my bag in general is uh you know i had probably a lot going on around my lifetime during that time but yeah for the most part i feel like i watched the sopranos i even bought a fucking game that's like sopranos trivia (laughs) so you know like yeah i was i was into it i enjoyed it uh i fell off of it and then i watched the finale and everybody lost their fucking minds and i was just like i don't know seemed seemed okay to me (laughs) like so you know um, but yeah, so I enjoyed the Sopranos, uh, but in terms of this film, uh, I don't know what the fuck this is. Uh, it's so funny because David Chase has been very vocal on a lot of interviews and things like that, p- 
prior to this, but definitely since this has come out uh, in promotion of this and saying very much that, you know, originally The Sopranos was supposed to be a movie and he pitched it to them at HBO and they actually accepted it. And he was like, fuck, I wanted this to be a movie, not a TV series. And then he made six seasons of this fucking thing that were like hour long episodes. So he turns in a movie here that is under two hours and it's just fucking mind blowing that he would do this to himself. Why would he pigeonhole himself like this? Um, or pigeonhole. I don't know if pigeonholes, I think pigeonhole is like when you repeatedly do something. Um, why would you like self handicap yourself in this way? I don't understand. Uh, this movie needs to be three hours long. Uh, he should go talk to, uh, Scorsese and see how he feels about that. Um, but you know, there are, bits and pieces of this that I did really enjoy. Uh, Ray Liotta has a turn that I was absolutely not expecting, and I won't spoil that for anybody here. Uh, hopefully, Spoilers, but he has a great turn. Uh, Michael Gandafidi obviously is very, very good in this. Uh, so is Vera Farmiga. Um, and, you know, to a lesser extent, even Alessandro Nivola is really, really good, although I feel like his character uh, ends up, in a way, not having any kind of consistency uh, towards the end, uh, which I felt was uh, kind of sad. So uh, we really? can talk you don't, more you don't about this. You think that he has any uh, consistency? <laughs> towards the end. Towards yeah, the yeah. end. Like, you know, his whole, like, you know, he's, he kills someone, feels bad about it a little bit. And then does it again. <laughs> That's not yeah, consistent uh, to you. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, I, I have complicated feelings about this film, um, which unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, David Chase would uh, absolutely eye roll. But, I, you know, I watch this on my TV. So. All right. Rumbar. So remember uh, a few weeks ago when I said the card counter was the worst movie I'd seen all year. <laughs> yes, which is crazy because we'd just seen Annette. <laughs> exactly. And then I softened on Annette after seeing the card counter. Well, now I've softened on the card counter <laughs> the card because count. I really despised this movie pretty much from the first two minutes. Um, I thought the dialogue was atrocious. Um just everything about it felt embarrassing to me. Not, not all the performances were bad, but some were just ridiculous. And I get that maybe it was fun for people. Maybe, you know, as Dan sort of alluded, there's Easter eggs, there's fan service. Uh, I just thought it was like, it felt like a spoof movie. It felt like one of those like Zucker, Zucker, Abraham Zucker movies to me. Like it just didn't feel like a real film at all. Um, I did not understand so many of the plots. Like, why? Why did they exist? What were they? I mean, there like there was so much uh, fanfare about Michael Gandolfini playing his father, the character his father had originated, and he's <laughs> in the movie for fifteen seconds. I mean, what the hell? Like, so I don't know. A lot of the vibe that I got from this movie was very uh, George Lucas, J.K. Rowling. I'm gonna cash in on my 
cinematic universe thing. I mean, it, it felt to me like the Fantastic Beast movies or like Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, where there where there's almost like no thematic congruence to like the original thing that everybody fell in love with. Um, I don't know. I just like everything about it was painful to watch to me. And I say this just so the audience can be sure. I'm not just like a dumb broad who did not care for the Sopranos. Like I love the Sopranos. I would probably say it's maybe my favorite show of all time, uh, you know, just ahead of Mad Men. And I loved it. It was the show that I was watching when I should have been writing my senior thesis in college. <laughs> like I just would watch Sopranos after Sopranos after Sopranos. And Bill, I want to argue with you for a second because I definitely could find those episodes via torrent. So I was able to get through those six seasons. No problem. Um, and of yeah, course I didn't that was, want to bring up that yeah. Bill should have just been torrent these <laughs> things, but that, that is 100% true. I am shocked that you didn't do that. At least I did, you know, in college. That's how but I that watched was, Rome. Yeah. Like, I don't understand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how exactly. I watched, yeah. Um, but that was 10 my, years my ago. My torrenting was for porn, so I don't know. Oh, my <laughs> God. Just go to one of the tubes, dude. <laughs> the tubes were not reliable back then. The torrenting was better. Mm, how much mm. do you have to love a porn to torrent it? Because then it's like, oh, yeah, seriously. Then it's there like... forever. Well, also, you know, when you're on college Wi-Fi, torrenting, uh, you know, was that's not true. a good idea. That's true. Well, that's well, why you got anyway. hardline. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, let's not get caught up talking about Bill's porn usage. Uh, there's so much to talk about. So, yeah, that was, but for me, that was 10 years ago. So, to be fair, I didn't, maybe there were some things that went over my head because I just forgot whole plot lines of the show. Um, but I, I was just i don't even i don't even know what the word is like not unimpressed like it goes beyond that i just kept feeling like this didn't feel like a movie at all it didn't feel like a tv show it felt like a series of scenes that had no connection to one another and yeah just i couldn't i couldn't stomach it i watched the first half and then just the thought of watching the second half just uh just made my stomach sink so i really had to force the last say, the end of that story is that you did in fact watch the same oh no half, i definitely right? watched okay. it i definitely watched it um you know it was just there it just existed it had nothing to me it looked ugly first of all like it just had this sort of plasticky sheen that and every scene was so dark i couldn't really make out what was happening um Anyway, I could go on and on, and I'm sure I will later. But I did want to say that there were three things I liked about this movie out of, you know, whatever, a million other elements. Number one, Corey Stoll as Uncle Junior. Uh, the man had no right to make Uncle Junior hot, and he did. Um, Vera Farmiga and her prosthetic nose really worked for me. And uh, I liked not Leah Michelle as Giuseppina. I don't, I don't remember the actress's name, but I... I thought that could have been pretty excellent stunt casting if they actually got Leah Michelle. Um, so those, those three elements worked for me, but they were just one of, you know, a handful of things that among handful of things that, that didn't work at all. Um, so, so that's my thoughts. Um, so I, um, I've only seen like three episodes of the Sopranos. Um, I guess that's like the secret shame I have to divulge at the beginning of this. I, I've seen like the first three episodes and I want to continue watching it. 
I just something happens, you know, like every time I've been like, oh, like I've lost a job. I guess it's time to finally watch The Sopranos. (laughs) I then get a job. Um, And then I just I just never come back to it Uh, because I I, and I don't know what it is because I have watched other TV series the whole way through. But there's something about The Sopranos like I watched an episode. and I was like, oh, this can't be something that I do while I'm doing something else. Like I need to set Mm -hmm. aside the time to watch this. Um, This movie makes me reconsider that. I don't I don't know how to put it like this movie makes me if like if I had never seen any of the Sopranos and all I saw was this movie I would think that people were crazy for thinking the Sopranos was good because there's no Mm -hmm. way that the creative team that made this movie could ever make anything good. (laughs) Um, Yes, (laughs) it just seems like it uh, it completely misunderstands the concept of like a story and a narrative and characters and dialogue <laughs> in a way that's really uh really upsetting and off-putting and strange and and yeah i am i was not a fan of this i'm with robin on that uh i feel like i too struggled i i also struggled to get through it um and uh yeah there was there was a lot i i i did know enough to know that like oh cory stoll is like a convincing junior soprano and to know like ah oh, vera formiga they gave her the nose um, but it is, I, you know, I'm watching this movie and all I can think is like, I can't wait for a main character to emerge and it mm. never really happened. And when it became clear who they're making the main character, I was confused as to why. Yes. And then the way the movie ends up, I'm even more confused as to why he's the main character. It's just, it's that thing that all prequels are like stuck with, which is like, people are coming to you because they know the original thing and so you have to play into that but like also some people are going to come to you without that knowledge and you should try to play to both of these people in some way yeah yep and i feel like i don't know i just um i didn't get any of the easter eggs i know that uh the girl that was with uh tony when he beat up that other guy i'm pretty sure ends up being his wife later on mm-hmm. so that's cool that they knew each other when they were in high school that's nice it's uh <laughs> But beyond that, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm at a loss. Also, I also feel now that I have been spoiled on the TV show just from a narrative standpoint, because the movie the movie opens up with a voiceover from a dead man who is one of the characters that I remember in the, the TV show from watching it. And I'm like, oh, he died. That's crazy. I wonder how that happened. And then he's immediately <laughs> like, and it's this guy who strangled me to death. And I'm like, oh, well, fuck me. I guess I. Just going to have that hanging over my head when I finally get to watch The Supreme. You're not going to remember. That's the only thing that I have going for me is that this movie was not great and maybe I'll forget <laughs> everything. Um, there is a point in this movie where a character returns from being somewhere and I had already forgotten who that character was and what his like his whole situation <laughs> was. And I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, that's the guy. But anyway, uh, let's, uh, I mean, let's, let's talk about it in a little more depth, a little more detail, a little more... Uh, I don't know. I really this it's I I almost dreaded coming on this podcast because I was like I don't know that I have a lot to say yeah. about this. It just it hangs together so little as a story. I just like I don't know. Like uh, I guess I guess I'll ask all of you fine folks who've seen the Sopranos, and we can start with uh, Daniel. Like, do you feel like this added anything to your knowledge and enjoyment and read of the Sopranos as a as a as a work of complete fiction? let's see you you threw out a lot of different words there uh knowledge (laughs) enjoyment read on and so i don't know that the answer is the same to all of them does it add anything to the sopranos 
In terms of my enjoyment, no, it absolutely 100% does not. Does it add to my understanding of things? Yes, I think it does. The bigger question is, does it add anything that I actually needed to know? Like, Hmm. you know, it's one thing to say, it absolutely filled in a number of different blanks in Tony Soprano's origin story that I did not know. A hundred percent, it did that. Whether knowing those things informs my perception of the TV show in any way that's positive or even negative or even meaningful, that's that's where it becomes a, a problem because does it make a 60 plus episode or however many it is more than that, I guess a TV show, does it make it a richer experience to have spent these two hours with these characters? It doesn't does having spent all that time with those characters make the movie a richer experience? I have to say, yes, of course it does because otherwise I don't know that there's a movie. So, you know, if you don't know who these people are and if you don't find it funny, ha, 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 someone's doing an impression of Polly Walnuts, ha, 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 someone's doing an impression of Silvio Dante. I don't know what you make of those characters. I don't know if the, I mean, they're not characters. They're absolutely nothing. They're references to future characters, which is not writing. It's maybe acting. If you wanted to say that it was sort of funny, the way people were playing forward looking things. Um, no, it's it's tough. I you know I guess I feel like probably it appears that I'm the most positive of the four of us here, um, and that's just because I kind of at a certain point stopped looking for it to cohere as a story and started enjoying the little moments, the little beats. I didn't find that it was generally cinematic, but I found instances that were cinematic to it but also the things that should have been cinematic were kind of boxy. Like you have the 1967 Newark riots. I I did not feel like that was a particularly well-presented version of a 1960s urban riot scene. Yep. So yeah, no, it's, this is, this is tough. It, It really is. Do, do I feel like I gained little bits of insight that I found amusing to know I kind of did because there's a lot of the backstory. I mean, The Sopranos is a show about mythologizing and the mythologizing and the unreliability of the mythologizing is so central to what the show is and to the show's perspective of both the mafia and the American identity. So it's all tied together. And so to see some of the details behind the mythologizing while also being aware that a lot of what we were seeing was not necessarily accurate because as you say, the story is being narrated by a dead man who's a child or even an infant or not born at all for most of this story. So mm-hmm. and a terrible play. filmmaker and a, ter- and a terrible filmmaker. So, and a terrible storyteller. So, like, it's well-established that Christopher Montesanti is a bad, I mean, he's a, he's a good, you know, fabulist, but he's not necessarily a good Hollywood cinematic storyteller. He tells bad stories in that respect. So it isn't actually surprising so, that he would tell a story that lacks coherence. Right. So you're saying that it's possible that the poor quality of this movie could be a meta-commentary upon the character telling it. Um, do, do I think that... <laughs> Honestly, yes, to some degree, to a, to a, you know, and the degree of your generosity towards it 
might depend upon that because we know the way that Christopher tells stories and we know the way that Christopher's stories are influenced by the movies that he loved. And so if this feels like a derivative story, which it very frequently does, how much of it is a derivative story because the person who's telling us the story likes derivative stories or put a different way, can't tell an original story himself. I think that is baked into it. it. It's just hard for me to know where that line is and what the meaning of that line is to anyone who attempts to watch this as a standalone movie. And, you know, Brian, you say only a few episodes, so that makes you kind of the least versed among us. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what this what this plays like if you don't know where everything is is going because I don't know what the story is unless the story is here's two hours of things that leads to another thing that you've already watched right so that's the so it's funny because that that also makes it sound like what Robin had been saying where she's like I don't know what to call this thing and I I am reminded once of a particular moment in my life where every day I was getting drunk with a bunch of my friends and all of them wouldn't shut the fuck up about how good Battlestar Galactica was um mm. <laughs> and they just kept saying like oh, so say stuff. we all yes yeah cool. <laughs> so and like i'd be at a party and i'd go to like you know smoke a cigarette or go to the bathroom or something and then i'd come back and i'd hear them having these like deep existential conversations and i'd be like like you know oh at what point does like you know an algorithm become a consciousness and like a well whatever and i'd be like oh great we're finally not talking about fucking battlestar galactica anymore and they're like oh no this is totally still battlestar galactica and the, the 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 at some point I was like, all right, okay, yeah, all right, it's coming back on. I know it's a, like hiatus for like mid season or it's a new season's gonna start. I was like, I would love to watch with you because you all won't shut the fuck up about it, and I've given up. I'm surrendering, but I can I don't have time to catch up on however many seasons there is. And they said, oh, that's okay. They released on YouTube like a twenty minute. This is all the important stuff that's happened oh, on Battlestar Galactica. God. And so, like, I sat down with, with alcohol and a friend, and I watched this thing with him. And it was, like, just sort of, like, ambient music, probably by Bear McCreary or whatever, on in the background. It was like, okay, so there's the Cylons, and they blew up all the stuff, and these people ran away, and then this happened, and then this happened, and these are the most important characters, and this is what's happening. And, I would, and at the end of it, I was like... Okay, all right, yeah. That, you know, as basically a 20-minute long previously on, it wasn't bad, and it did get me where I needed to be so that when we started watching it all together, I was, like, had enough that I didn't need to ask questions during the episode, and I could ask for clarification after. And that is a little bit like this movie, except it's two fucking hours long, and it 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 clearly has what it considers to be a beginning and a middle and an end. And um, I also feel like if I suddenly started watching Sopranos, it wouldn't be as helpful to me to have seen this movie. It would be completely inessential. And I think that yeah. I think that is the big difference is that if you attempted to jump into Battlestar Galactica in season four without having watched a 20 minute catch up video, you would be confused as hell. If you attempted to pull up episode one of The Sopranos, which is one of the greatest pilots ever made. Yeah, uh, I would say top five pilots ever made there would be absolutely nothing that you gained watching that pilot from the two hours that you spent watching this as a previously on it's sort of it's it's ephemera it's it's a bonus feature it's um and if you feel like it's an entertainment bonus feature that's cool but like what i would compare it to is there was um 
God, there was whatever the movie was uh, that was made of the outtakes from Anchorman. Is that a thing that actually? <laughs> oh yeah, it happened, or did I invent that? It, yeah, <laughs> that, that is a real me, thing. You are correct. That's, okay, yeah, cool. that to me is kind of what this felt like. It, it felt like okay, here are some outtakes from flashbacks that someone could have had sitting looking at a photo album during a season of The Sopranos, like where Tony could have brought the kids around and he could have pulled out the old family album and he could have gone, ha, there was there was Dickie Hollywood and there was your mother. Isn't it weird weird that your mother was younger then and it looked like (laughs) also, isn't it really weird that your mother um, or rather your grandmother, rather not your grandmother, that she actually was really a lot more like your mother. Because I think that's the most interesting thing about what Vera Farmiga is playing, is that she's playing, I would say, about a third Nancy Marchand and probably two-thirds Edie Falco, which is a a choice. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a real choice because, of course, all the Freudian stuff is baked into the Sopranos' DNA as well. So the fact that Tony ultimately completely and totally married his mother is utterly a valid interpretation of, of what happened with the Sopranos. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's, it's a strange thing. I obviously enjoyed it a good deal more than uh, a couple of you guys, but I don't know that I enjoyed it in the same way as I enjoy an actual good two hour movie that I sit down and watch as a two hour movie. And that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Cause like, you know, there's a thing that has happened recently with like prestige television where like you like, let's say it's a 10 episode season episode eight will be like an episode entirely devoted to a flashback episode. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, yeah. like the leftovers did this, where it's like the, 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 the Garvey's at their best, I think is the name of the mm-hmm. episode where it's just like, all right, all right, we've seen everything is shitty. Let's go back. Let's go back three years to a random couple of days before everything sucked and everything will kind of tie in, but some of it will be just fun, but a lot of it will help to fill in some backstory that we've already seen. And like when those are executed well, you know, you get something like the Garvey's at their best. And when they're not executed well, you get something like the morning show, which did this. And it didn't really feel like it helped me at all in watching that. Um, yeah, somehow I watched a series, a season of the morning show, but I have not watched more than three episodes of The Sopranos. Which, God what, rest your soul. Yeah. What am I doing with my life? I feel this is terrible. But anyway, and this feels like I feel like more of what the morning show did than what the leftovers did. Like, it's just like, all right, let's go, let's go back. Let's fill in some things. And then it's over. It's like, I don't know if any of that was really necessary for me. I think what's funny about this is I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and, uh, I think Alan Sepamal was on two of them. And, uh, Sepamal, if I'm not mistaken, uh, is the guy that, uh, also co-wrote, uh, a entire fucking book all about mm-hmm. the Sopranos, right? And yes. uh, it's called like the Soprano Chronicles or something like that. Sessions. Um, Sessions. Confessions? Sessions. Okay. Sessions. 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 Sorry. Digressions? Uh, no, no. So it's, it's so funny because I feel like the Sopranos as a piece of TV was in this weird like timing of it was the biggest prestige show before there was really like prestige TV. It kind of made that a thing. Uh, it made HBO a Sunday night like appointment television. And it did so much 
before there was really like this big kind of push towards television to be something beyond just a a thing that sold commercials, right? And, uh, you know, Chase has talked about this and stuff like that. But I think what's happening now is he gave us 86 episodes and people love this fucking show. And then he gives us a two-hour movie and people are like, I, 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 I don't love it, but... David Chase gave it to us, so I can't say anything like really bad about it. And it's just like, fuck that. Like, he can make a bad movie, he can make a bad show, he can make a bad episode of television or whatever. And I feel like there's there's just like this this like walking on eggshells that kind of happens around him. And granted, a lot of these podcasts that I've kind of listened to, whether it's like the big picture or stuff like that, they end up doing an interview with david chase so i can understand like they're kind of being tiptoey because you know they don't want to simultaneously shit on the movie and then be like now listen to my interview with the director and you're gonna be like fuck no why would i do that you know um but i understand that like that some people just have a reverence for chase that makes them say nice things about this film i think in particular um which is nothing to say about his previous film which apparently also took place in in kind of the same time period uh i didn't catch that one uh but and that would be not fade away not fade away Mm -hmm. and i just find it interesting because i see a lot of people struggling to kind of find what they can say about this film without like completely you know like like brian is saying as someone that has like no reverence for chase right except for all of everybody else piling on in that way where he watched you know just a handful of episodes and he was like yeah you know something just didn't click i couldn't get into it and then now he's watching this and he's like, are you fucking serious? Like, this is the same guy. Well, I want to be clear. I didn't like, say Shit. I couldn't get into it. I said I really, really liked it and that it actually required more attention of me than if I'm like going to burn my way through the morning show clearly and that I wanted to well, savor it and be a, it, present for it. And this movie has now made me go, oh, wait, maybe I was wrong. But I'm sure okay. that I wasn't wrong. Like, you so know, here's the thing is that the, the, the Sopranos is like 20 years old now, you know, so like, you know, people. Lose yes, step, it is. You know, sometimes the project just stays too long. Well, Brian, it, I ask, without this podcast, would you have watched this movie? No, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? OK, that, I mean, and that's and that to me is a, is a big question because you wouldn't have. And I don't know how many people out there would have not to say that everyone in the world has a podcast for which they have to watch. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it feels like everyone has a podcast nowadays. Certainly hundreds of thousands of people had podcasts for which they had to watch the many saints of New York. (laughs) And that's, that, that's my question is, you know, does it matter? Because, you know, the thing that you, that you say there, Bill about, you know, sort of people struggling to find a way to respond to something like this. I, I, you know, it's not unique to this. There are people out there and I don't know the three of you guys who insist that the Veronica Mars movie is a a decent movie. The Veronica Mars (laughs) is utterly inept and it makes this movie look like Citizen Kane. The Veronica Mars movie is a total amateur hour fiasco that people were willing to accept either because they loved the show and they were so pissed off about the way it ended or, and this is even more direct than, uh, than this, 
they have a direct investment in it because yes. they Kickstarter get it made. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. So, so you, you get that you have the, you have El Camino, a breaking bad movie, which is also only sort of a movie, but right. It, but El Camino, yeah. like it does function as a, oh. like it, you know, it, it, this is the, this is one of the issues with this movie. And that's actually like a perfect way into it. El Camino is like, even if you've never seen Breaking Bad, this is a guy who clearly has to get the fuck out of town, and this is what he's got to do to get out of town, you know? So, like, there is an inherent tension there. It takes place over, like, what, three days? And involves, like, him with a gun and getting money and ripping people off and doing stuff. And there's, like, even if you only have that, even if you only look at it as, like, here's a scumbag who needs to get out of town type of thing, it works. And this movie, I can't even tell you what the fucking plot is. A guy murders his dad accidentally and starts fucking his stepmom and then murders her and then gets killed because (laughs) he laughed at a guy who fell down. I think I said we were in spoilers, but also I don't remember that. It doesn't matter. No one it doesn't it doesn't fucking matter at all. Um (laughs) but like that's the movie. And also, I mean, like, who the fuck is this guy? Well, that's the Why thing. do I care about I'm him? Watching, I'm watching this whole movie and I'm like, this must be a character who I don't remember from the TV show. And then he gets fucking murdered. And I'm like, oh. So in my head, I'm like, I don't even know if they ever talk about this guy in the TV show. He could be, a, 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 what do they call it? What, not retroactive. A retcon. He could be a retcon for all I know. I mean, this whole movie's a retcon. Yeah, I don't know. I know you wouldn't know, but like Dan would know, (laughs) Dan and Bill would know. And there's, there's some of that, but I, you know, I think that it comes down to whether you are invested in the idea. And again, this requires having watched an entire TV show in the idea of what brought Tony into this world that he tried to avoid becoming a part of, but that was a world that his family was you know, entrenched in and that he was determined to avoid. And it's, and that's all in the backstory on the, on the TV show and the backstory of the TV show continues. Where does the relationship between Tony and Christopher and what does it mean to them both? And how is it tied to Tony's relationship with Christopher's father? These are things that are a part of the backdrop of the TV show, whether you needed to have it spelled out in a way, this literally, especially when you get to the end of the movie, that's something else. And and no, I don't think you really do I think I think it's I think it's a, a this is gonna be a shocking thing things that are well written give the impression that a world existed before the pilot and that the world is going to continue to exist after the pilot and you don't necessarily need to have everything that happened before told to you and even if it's 10 years later you don't necessarily need to revisit and be told everything 10 years later and that's where this becomes a, a confusing thing is what was the story that needed to be told here mm-hmm. and the ridiculous thing is that the story that needed to be told here is the Leslie Odom Jr. story and I'm not really sure that David Chase has any clue of what the through line is of that story or why he wanted to tell it in this context other than that he kind of wanted to tell it to talk about the difference between how Newark operated an organized crime and where the Italian mafia and where the black crime syndicates uh, with connections to Frank Lucas, et cetera, how they intersected. I think that is a great story, whether it's a story that has anything to do with the Sopranos. I think the answer is not particularly. And then he made it into that without necessarily wanting to commit to the story and it's a it's it's 
it just doesn't come together as well as it should. And I would watch a film or an extended TV show about the Leslie Odom Jr. character because I think he's very interesting. And I don't know that Chase is really all that interested in him. I don't think Chase knows how to write that story, frankly. Based on this movie, I don't think Chase knows how to write any story. I, I, which is not true. Which is not right. Yes, no. I like again, like you know, Daniel, you said it. Like this, that's one of the best pilots of all time. I've seen it. I love it. My dad retired and started uh, raising. Um, I don't know if raising is the right word. Like he he got a bunch of milkweed plants and then like watched the caterpillars hatch from their eggs and eat and eat and then become monarch butterflies. And I said, like, look out, Ma. Those might be his like his ducks. You know, like I'd seen mm-hmm. like two episodes of this show and I was like, I know enough that uh, these ducks are going to imprint themselves into my head for the rest of my life. And <laughs> that's all I remember. The pilot or the ducks and how skinny Gandolfini looked. I don't remember that part. Um, but yeah, I know. I was like, hey, the ducks, these monarch butterflies are going to be the ducks. And then. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Like there was a lot happening in this movie, and I was like, "Have we finally made it to the plot? Like, is this what the plot's gonna be?" I thought the twist of the whole thing was that he goes to see his guidance counselor, and he's like so into the idea of being guidance counseled, and like that was <laughs> supposed to be a wink, wink to his uh, therapy later on. And his sure, therapy- he. he- uh, I, I think I think it's interesting because he does like push against it, right? As as a lot of people do, as especially the, you know masculine men and and all of this shit. You know, he's like, I I I don't I don't want to sit here and talk. And it's just like, really? Like you're in fucking trouble, dude. I'm like, just still I'm still hung up on the fact that Robin said guidance counseled. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. Uh, but yeah, he pushes back against it. And then she kind of opens him up a little bit and she does it in a way that I found like actually really interesting because she wasn't, it didn't seem like she was necessarily good at it. It just seemed like she was just like, I'm, I'm just going to be here and I'm going to ask you a question and you're going to say no and I'm just going to stare at you and then you're going to give me a little bit more. And I guess in a way like that, that is good. Right. But it didn't strike me as she was particularly skilled at, at her trade. And, you know, I, I don't know if she is a guidance counselor or if she's a principal and I don't know how much overlap there is in like, I don't know. You she know, said she it, gave like a Myers-Briggs personality test. Yeah. Yes, what like a genius. I was like, I was like, holy fuck, really? Like, okay. Um, It's not a real test. It's not like a, it's not like part of the whisk or something like that. It's it's, it's not. It's it's barely useful on an OkCupid profile. And the only reason it is useful is because the second I see it, I swipe left. (laughs) <laughs> we administered a Myers-Briggs it's it's barely more interesting than astrology but it's, a jersey, it's a New Jersey public school with no particular sense in the in the early 70s of how to treat a complicated person I think that's, sure. a, fairly, I think sure. that's a fairly realistic but New Jersey thing. public schools are literally the best in the country were they in 1971? are they well, now? I'll have to google this I don't know my now, cousins I think are New from Jersey's New Jersey and uh <laughs> I think that 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 scene kind of gives the illustration of Tony's desire to eventually blather and his existence Mm -hmm. in the world in which blathering equals death and how easy it is to get him to 
blather. And, you know, I, I actually did find it kind of touching because the guidance counselor repeats the story that he mm-hmm. uh, yeah. tells her to his mother. And the mother has been nothing but awful leading up to that point. And for like a minute, you can see in her eyes, wait, did I actually do something right? Might I actually be a good mother? Maybe if I make him a hamburger, he'll talk to me and we'll have a relationship like I want us to have. And then that conversation goes so poorly with the hamburger. <laughs> and 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 that that moment to me, I would say, I don't know that anything else here was heartbreaking. Not any of the people who get killed for no particular reason because they were barely characters. But that moment to me was a little heartbreaking because it does set up where everything is with Tony and his mother as this as the series begins because there was this minuscule window in which maybe they could have had a relationship and she made him a hamburger, which she figured was meeting him more than halfway. And it, it just didn't work. And from there, everything else is tragedy. And I, I kind of like that because it's the way that the show operates where, where the line between <clears throat> tragedy and comedy is sometimes is that thin sometimes. Speaking of which, I did not like the scene where they're torturing that guy with the God, it was like the car drill. I don't know. Is that like the technical term? And then they turn that into a comic scene. And I'm like, you can't just drill uh, like you can't just on screen torture a black man and then turn that into a comic scene. I don't think that flies. It just made me uncomfortable. I mean, the racial dynamic is is real and obviously plays yeah. but having those the vi- the violence in but it's the way comedy. it's directed i just didn't i don't know if that really stood out to me as something that just felt so in poor taste it, it may feel more aged than anything because i feel like the sopranos did that a lot where it was having fun in certain ways during some grotesque moments and that certainly was a grotesque moment that it seemed like they were having fun in again Um, yeah no it's definitely part of the the language of the show i guess my concern about something like that or like you know a tableau like that is that chase and connor want to bring a quote-unquote black voice into this film And so much of this film is spent on characters that we have no idea who they are. We don't really know why they're there, um, but they do represent maybe something that was missing in the original series, which is like a perspective on other types of crime and organized crime in Newark and how that's divided into uh, like ethnic categories. So there's that element. And then in, in, in saying something like, Oh, we want to bring representation to this film. And then, make a comedy or like make a comic moment out of something that was like truly horrifying to watch. And I don't mean just from a violent standpoint, but also like from a sociological standpoint, it just, it, it rang, uh, it rang sort of old man to me. Like it just, yeah. like I said, it's, it's aged really poorly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm saying like specifically in the sense of like, okay, here you have chase. Who's like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to bring another element to this film and then completely like un- underwrites himself or not, that's not the word, but like undermines himself. I, I think, I think he's shown that that's just his bag and that like, 
you know, he is the age that he is. I don't I don't know if he's going to reinvent himself. I think I think when he is making a violent sequence like that, that's just like his his like his what is it like reaction to it is i gotta i gotta find something humorous here you know because not all of the sequences have something humorous but you know that is kind of speckled throughout a lot of the sopranos is there's something humorous happening while something horrible is happening and he just chose for you in particular he just chose a very in in uh poor taste timing uh there Yes. But, yes. I mean, I, I'm I'm not going to argue against it that like, oh, that was a great sequence. Like, no, that was it's fucking awful. Um, I know it's his thing, but, and yeah. like we know that I'm a fan of gore, and we know that I, uh, <laughs> you I like are gore the, <laughs> I like the dichotomy. Your your one your your one word or one sentence review of of uh, what the fuck did we watch? Army of the, the Dead? Yeah, Army of the Dead was it's not gory enough, and I was like, "Are you fucking kidding?" It me? wasn't. Jesus Christ! Yeah, you know, okay. a zombie movie's got to be gory. But anyway, like uh, his his whole thing is, and and I what I appreciate is my whole thing is like I love the dichotomy between violence and and comedy and and humor when it's done very well. Um, but I don't want to harp on this one scene. It just, to me, it was representative of how much those storylines just did not work together at all. And I think that also brings up the fact that there's no woman character in this movie that makes a whole heap of sense. I like, mean, let's be fair. There's no male characters in this movie who make a whole heap of sense. Oh, that's either. true too. But there's we don't even get like one female character that has any... Like, first of all, where's Janice in this whole thing? Like, I see her on screen, but she's she might as well be a potted plant. I mean, she's she has no um, there's no interest in young Janice for some reason. Vera Farmiga, sure. But she's also playing, uh, you know, like a harpy. OK, then you have Giuseppina, who's supposed to be the heart of the movie. And she's just, you know, is that confirmed? <laughs> is that a where are you getting that feeling from? Oh, I think she's supposed to. You're supposed to be like, oh, poor Giuseppina. Like, you know, she was taken advantage of and this and that. And I agree with that. Like, she was the abused wife and then she was the abused Gumar and and then the murdered Gumar. Gumar. And it was just like, we get it. You know, we've seen it a million times on The Sopranos before. Like, she had to die. And in the stupidest way possible, frankly. God, she just really wanted that fucking hair salon, you know? <laughs> God. Uh, so I wanted to talk about something that Daniel mentioned, uh, you know, a, a touch in sequence that I found that kind of played into it was Vera Farmiga's, you know, it's during that hamburger sequence that she brings up <laughs> that he or she has been prescribed this like drug to you know antidepressant to kind of bring up her mood and she kind of talks to tony about this and he's like okay and in a way he ends up following through and like trying to help her and in such a way that like he gets his own uncle involved in it or i guess it's not uncle by blood right it's i i kept getting that confused um but anyways he always calls him uncle. Uh, and so he tries to get his uncle involved. And by the end of the film, when they're having this like uh, wake after he's he's been killed, 
she mentions offhandedly he's been trying to get her or him to get this medicine like throughout the last 30 minutes of this movie and she mentions oh he was found with that medicine i didn't realize he was such a broken man or something along or such a weak man and i was just like a that's for fucking you yeah but she didn't want it yeah, I, I know, know that was but, the irony. but, that, but yeah. that was that was the irony was he was found with it it was for her she never took it and now she thinks he's he's weak because of it and also what the fuck why do you think he's weak you were prescribed that too yeah and she like, didn't take it because she's fucking strong have you never dealt with someone who didn't want to yeah, take seriously? antidepressants bill like is everyone no, in your I, life I just very mentally healthy like are you what are you <laughs> not getting here how dare you? Yeah, I, I, I get that, Brian. Just because what some quack is... told her she needed to take pills because he didn't know how to handle her, you know. Uh, and then this idiot's taking them, and she knows what they are because he's. And it she... proved her right. He got himself killed. What a dink! Yeah, <laughs> and it's also essential to have that in the context of what Tony's own struggles with his own depression and his mm-hmm. own prescription drug relationship is uh, later in life. I, I mean, you you have to have that because you have to have the hope that he saw in mama's little helper and potentially fixing his mother and then how he feels with his own depression and his own possibility of taking antidepressants and then his mother lingering around at that time and how that's all stigmatized. So I think it's all sort of the stigmatization of, of mental illness and depression. And I mean, just any sort of having any sort of personality uh, other than, yeah, this is great. You know, I'll absolutely take your speakers off of the, that fell off the truck any doubt whatsoever is a sign of weakness. So then once you go from that to, you know, God forbid having to take chemical enhancements for it, it's just another sign of weakness on top of weakness. And that's all the Sopranos as a series becomes is Tony uh, balancing his desire to be better with people thinking he's weak. Uncle Junior being perceived as being weak. Just, it just, it comes up over and over again. I thought that was fairly thematically relevant to the series and actually mm-hmm. did kind of add something to yeah, my absolutely yeah and, and and in that way you know you were saying that that sequence in you know the the tail end sequences of you know him going to the counselor him getting counseled and then that hamburger sequence and that being heartbreaking in the in that same way i found that sequence when she just kind of you know, lays into, you know, someone that just passed away and calls him weak. I was just like, fuck, like there is no hope for this group. If she is going to be the figurehead. I think the lack of hope is really probably what the whole movie's about because we know what happens to every single one of these people. And so, absolutely. and so, yeah, there, you know, there's nowhere this can end other than, um, okay, well, now that we know these things, let's get to the TV series where a lot of these people are going to die in ways that really are not very appealing for any of them and where this thing of theirs is going down the tubes. So yeah, there's, there's no hope and there's not supposed to be any hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just there's a part of me that feels like this movie, if it hadn't focused on Pollock's Troy so much, like if it really had been about um, young Tony Soprano, like that it probably would have been better. And like, it seems almost like the trailer knows that to be the case, too. Mm hmm. Well, I, I mean, it, 
Daniel's question to you, whether you would watch this film at all, you know, outside of this podcast is kind of prescient or is kind of, you know, on, on the nose as well. But I think the other thing is the marketing team was dealt a rough hand where this is a prequel. It's being sold as that, but would David Chase like that to be the selling point? And, you know, very vocally, he said, that's, that's a bad idea from the, uh, from the marketing team that they're selling this as a Tony Soprano prequel. He was just like, no, that's, that's not what this is. And it's like, okay, cool. We understand that that's not what this is after watching this, right? It's very obvious. <laughs> yeah, but no one's going to want to watch a movie that tells like the untold story of Newark, you know? No, the exactly. untold story of Christopher's daddy. Like, who gives well, a shit? The, the, the and, city and that sometimes sleeps. <laughs> it, it's funny because, you know, in that interview that I listened to, he was talking about how he just wanted to make a really good crime movie. Well, he and, well, and and the, the funny thing is, and look, I'm not going to shit on any movie that's under two hours. That's a crime movie. <laughs> but like, let's talk about some of the great crime movies of the you know, the last 20, 30 years. And I got news for you, David Chase. None of them are two hours. They're all like two and a half, close to three hours. Like the Godfather is fucking long as hell. Heist is an hour and 49 minutes, Bill. Is is that one of the classics of cinema? I don't know. I like to think it is. Well, what's a classic, um, Crime I mean, movie. to be to, to be honest with you, most of them are are fucking on Scorsese Street. Like, you know, it, it just kind of <laughs> is. Mean what it is. <laughs> are you just talking about Scorsese? Like, that's the thing, though. Is like, if if that's that, but that's, no, that, there that, there, that, there are others. Funny. There are plenty of others. Right, like Heist. <laughs> Jesus, but, I like but heist. I think that Heist is is absolutely David Mamet. It is most David Mamet. But something like Heat, which is I believe ten minutes short of three hours, is another example that isn't straight up Scorsese, just sort of Michael Mann yeah. being in yeah. that universe. So, but yeah, that's that's a basically a three hour crime movie. You have to feel like there's a certain you have to feel like the weight is defended by the running time. You have to feel because it's all it's all life and death. The stakes are the stakes cannot be higher in this genre. And often in this, I felt like the stakes were dissipated by the scenes that I felt like I was missing in things. It, it does feel very cut. And I think he's been very honest about the fact that he did a lot of reshoots and a lot of recutting of this. And, you know, he's he was also very honest about the fact that he didn't get a lot of studio interference. So this is what he wanted to make. I just think you know, you know, it's 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 super weird to call this a crime movie. There's not a lot of crime in it. I just like I think there's it's not a heist. There's not like a syndicate. Like you get no concept of how these people make their money. Like it's a family drama. Right. But that the problem is that then you don't get a lot of the family shit either. Like it's just it's just it's a it's a sandwich with one slice of bread and a, you know, tenth of a pound of meat. And then just a shit ton of what? mayonnaise. There's not enough there. That sounds to so really good. Be. No, it doesn't. Oh my god, it's yeah, just, an open face meat sandwich. A, a tenth of a pound of meat to you feels like it's enough. Is that like two slices? I think 
It's like it one, a very, yeah. very thin, one very thin slice. Yeah, that works. <laughs> That's crazy to me. Anyway, no, what, what I meant to say. Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Um, no, it's just, it, you know, like heat. Heat has, they've got their scores that they're trying to do, you know? And then on that framework, you can hang all the other stuff that makes heat heat, you know, that that brings up all the, the greatness that is there. And then, of course, you know, heists, they've got their plan. They've got their Swiss thing, you know? And around that, you build all the intrigue. And like, you need, there needs to be a thing around which to put all the other things I, I shouldn't have to explain basic storytelling. It's just so <laughs> weird. It's so weird that this movie, I'm just like, I'm constantly like, it's got to have to land on a genre or a something sometime because I'm not down with these barely connected yeah, just things that are, ha- and then it like jumps forward like 10 years or something. And I'm just like, what has changed other than Tony Soprano's character actor? And it's yeah. just, it's so weird to me. It's so weird. We haven't even talked about the two Ray Liotas. Oh, God. That was the worst thing on screen. The two Liotas. Why I does actually, he have a Chicago wow. accent? Why? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't notice accents, but I fucking, I love that. He didn't sound at all like role. Michael Snydell. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I love that they gave him this, this role. And I love that his character is basically like, I love that. It wasn't marketed, you know, it wasn't telegraphed. And so when he shows up on screen, you're very fucking confused. You're like, all right, what the fuck is going on here? And he doesn't and even then, say like, oh, my twin brother. He's just like, yeah, no, this is just, it's me. They here just I leave am. it. They just leave it blank. And so a little bit of, you know, kind of Hollywood bullshit backstory is apparently the guy that they wanted to play his brother just kept negotiating and wanted more money than they were willing to pay him and so they just came to him and were like do you want to play your twin brother and he was like cool sure fuck it and so like that's that's what we get and so there is no explanation there is no and it it would be so un it would it would be so natural for his his what is it uh niece to or nephew to look at him and go whoa i hold on like give me a second yeah <laughs> you know like you know uh, that you're but he doesn't <laughs> it must be yeah. weird to murder your dad and then go talk to his brother and then for his brother to look the same as your your dead dad yeah, like that's got to like, have zero yeah. affect and a Chicago accent. But I okay. <laughs> see, here's the thing, Robin. This is where I'm going to have to diverge. I think that him, that prison Leota is the best part of this movie because yes. I think. <laughs> wow, Jesus Christ! That was, that was an odd noise. <laughs> yeah, who did that? Even <laughs> like I'm flabbergasted. Well, well so I, you I start off him. with Hollywood Leota, whatever his name was, and he's like this, he's the, the typical boisterous, you know, making a lot of noise and talking about stuff, kind of like, you know, Joe Pesci-ish gangster. <laughs> gangster. And then, yeah, and then and then he gets fucking whacked, and then um, and then this guy goes to... Well, he wasn't whacked. He was, like, beaten by his son who wanted to fuck his wife. Sure, sure, yes. Yeah, but he also hated him for watching him beat his mom. 
Which is yes, ironic because then he fucking murders his girlfriend. Anyway, um, exactly. I'm sure he beats his own wife too. Cycles of abuse. Uh, the the it sins should be of mentioned the father. that there is a there is a school of thought already, which I was noticing on the interwebs today that uh, that Uncle Sally doesn't exist at all. Is that <laughs> no? Well, no, they, we're not they, doing they, that. Uh, Come well, on. <laughs> well, I, I do want to get to eventually. Let's talk about that sequence where he is. Uh, uh, the coach of the Little League uh, blind team. Uh, and some people seem to be under the impression that that's an, an actual thing, like that that sequence is an actual thing. And I'm just like, you don't think that's real? No, he is. When that scene ends, it cuts to him being alone at the prison. Like, clearly, he's just fucking made this up. I think that's this. No, God damn it. That'll make me hate this movie more than I already do. <laughs> yeah, I think he's, he completely. Daniel, do you think you made up? up? You think you made up the beep ball thing? I don't. I can see why it would be that you, that one would think that. And I don't. I mean, look, he's trying to self-rationalize and self-justify and his ability to seek guidance from the side of the father he wishes he'd been able to experience, but never was able to experience because he didn't exist. Um, I, I can see why there's a lot of fabricating that he's looking for the father figure that he didn't have. He's looking for the civic mindedness that he has never possessed. Um, you know, it's hard for me to believe that that was a literal scene, the beep baseball, but it was also a sort of inspired concept. I assume that it's a thing that exists. And so, yeah, th there's too much specificity. Ugh. I, I fucked that word up real good, but uh, there's too much specificity to that sequence for it not to be real. Like, I feel like if that isn't a real thing and then they, they went through that much depth and detail to make it a thing, beep baseball. I just feel like, is yeah, if you go to nbba.org it is a real thing it's Excellent. This, okay. this exists it yeah. is a baseball a form of baseball which can be played by people who are visually impaired using a ball that beeps no i could but i can i can buy the idea that that was a fabrication that uncle sally's a fabrication i i don't know that i necessarily subscribe to it but i think that if you want to take those as being figments of Dickie's imagination, then it at least makes it easier to understand how this becomes his story, how you interpret him as being the protagonist of this story, which it's sometimes hard to otherwise. Like, if you just wanted to say, who is the person who has the narrative arc here? Again, it's the Leslie Odom Jr. character. It's it's Harry who has the arc. He's the one who, who goes through the literal and personal journey. Dickie does not. But if you read into it, and heck, maybe the drugs actually were Dickie's also. Maybe Dickie mm -hmm. was self-medicating for his own depression because heaven knows he had it. If you think that, uh, that a lot of what was happening here is Dickie being fucked up by the situation he's put himself into, and you see him kill his father and he just sort of pretty much goes about his business and sets him on fire and that's all that you go, okay, that's much too easy. But if this is almost all of that uh, figment of his imagination, then he's going through some shit and it makes a lot more sense. And it ties into what Tony went through and to Tony's various fantasy sequences in the TV series. It, it all kind of makes sense. I just don't know that I fully buy it or thought it was fully sold. And so that's the complication mm -hmm. there. 
I think, okay, so here's here's my issue, is that every time one of these internet conspiracy theories comes up, it makes the movie less interesting. It is it is so much less interesting if he's, I, first of all, I don't know why he would hallucinate going to see a man in prison and then lie to his hallucination. So yeah, I feel no, like that's they can't. Too much. That's a hat on a hat. Right. They can't both be true. <laughs> yeah. You just like. And I just, again, I feel like the only way that he, that it's even kind of interesting to think about, not an execution, but to think about, is that this guy knows that he fucks up and is trying so hard, but still can't feel better, even though he's got the whole Catholic, like, oh, good works, she'll save me type of thing, you know? And he's like, I am, like, I, I'm doing really well, like, I'm giving all this money, I'm coming to you, you know, and I, I'm even fucking teaching blind kids how to play baseball, and we see this moment, which in any other movie would be so cute and adorable, and all these blind kids are chanting, like, we love Coach Multisante, and he's just like, <laughs> and I still feel fucking hollow, because I've murdered my dad, and now I'm sleeping with his wife, and, and I'm cheating so- on my own wife, and like, you know, this, but this is like, this is the world I've been growing up in, like, those th- those things, if they are all literally true, make him a more interesting, rich character than if he's lying about it. I, I like it's it's only interesting when a person is conflicted if they're acting on that confliction, because otherwise it's just like, oh man, I feel like shit. I wish I could do something good. I guess I'm just gonna keep doing bad things. Because then it's just like, well, you're lazy, you know. Then I just don't believe you. But if you comp- if you view it as a companion piece to what Tony tried to do to deal with his own guilt and mm-hmm. to deal with his own internal crises and what was available to Tony in the early aughts versus what was available to Dickie in the 70s and coping mechanisms to being a person with a conscience in a world in which having a conscience is decidedly detrimental and also consistently doing awful things because while you might have a conscience, you're also psychotic. Uh, you know, he, he pounds his dad's head into a steering wheel many, many times and then like, eh, okay, I'll set him on fire. So I think <laughs> it's about coping mechanisms. And I think that's what the Sopranos was about. And I think that's to some degree what this is about. And I'm, I'm okay with that. It's just, it's not artful. And then to have it happening as an intercutting element with young Tony's coming of age story. And will he be good enough to play football? And with Harry, <laughs> up in the oh, Jesus. World, it's just hard to sell the more complex thematic idea. If you're not going all in on it. And it doesn't seem to me here, like David Chase is going all in on anything. He's going two thirds of the way in on 10 things that he just can't cover in two hours. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I mm-hmm. was reminded of something you said during the, the Amanda Pete interview about how the Sopranos is really the story of a dying empire. Um, you know, like the last days mm-hmm. of Rome in some ways. So it's kind of interesting to watch this film and think like, what does this mean to be, I, I don't even know if you consider the sixties, the height of the mob. I don't think so. I think the twenties and thirties probably were, but um, so much of the cultural, so, so many of our current cultural tropes are about the mafia in the sixties and fifties. So it was kind of interesting to see what the quote unquote highlight of this era was in some ways, but it, it totally missed the mark to me. Um, like even even just some of the set dressing, I just kept thinking like, this looks like CGI. 
it just doesn't uh it didn't really have that captured historical feeling i think the only time i really felt oh this feels like the 60s to me was um when when uh what's his name dicky and Giuseppina go to the shore and she has this like long black hair that's teased and and has this height and she's wearing this like white uh fur i don't even know like this white shaggy dress and something about it like that was really the only time that i felt like oh this is this is them capturing a moment Uh, otherwise to me like it just didn't really at all feel like a movie set 50 years ago but on the sopranos tony knows that the mob is dead you know, he, mm-hmm. he knows and he says it in the pilot that he's closer to the end than to the beginning. What's interesting here is that the mob's dead already in this and they just don't know. No one no one has that level of self-awareness that they're past their peak. No one recognizes that when what you have to look forward to is Frank Sinatra Jr. in the mezzanine that that you miss the glory years. And Mm -hmm. that, that to me is interesting also, because there's just that lack of self-awareness. Everybody in the Sopranos knows that the next moment, because, you know, that's, that's what the, the 10 year gap is, is Rico. That's, that's, Mm -hmm. and how much that changed things. Now the show has no, I mean, the movie has no desire to explain what it means and you either know, or you don't, but everybody in the Sopranos knows that they're five minutes away from being either killed or run in by the law, it's going to end. They're all just kind of trying to run out, play out the string. I don't think that anyone in many saints of Newark knows that. And I think that's an interesting thing is that they are all in this dying thing and no one recognizes it. It's a, it's a chicken with its head cut off situation. And, and I think there's something somewhat poignant about that. Maybe it just required five seasons of legwork in order to make me actually feel it. And I couldn't do it in 120 minutes. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Likewise. I will say though, I do I do still want to watch The Sopranos. Like it's, <laughs> You should. You know, it's just, it is it it is crazy though, because I just was sitting there watching this and I was like, maybe I don't like <laughs> it's it, this movie is a facsimile of whatever the Sopranos really is or was. And again, it just felt like a, a JK Rowling cash in vibe. Just I was about to ask, like, can you think of are are there other things like this where like a person goes back and you're like oh maybe you shouldn't have oh yeah i mean i mean lucas <laughs> yeah i guess that's a good point Talk about him what's weird though is that i like i don't want to be this guy but like if if i were to put the prequel trilogy against this at least the prequel trilogy tells a story that like oh well no like, you know, I, it, I am not I'm not comparing you know what is that seven and a half eight hours to this two hour thing and and saying you know even if it was just the Phantom Menace right yeah that's I think still the Phantom Menace is still yes yeah like but compared to what it was I think it's a it's a similar kind of fall from grace where it just feels like the person that made the thing didn't understand what was great about the thing and it's just like how does that happen what when does that happen yeah. and is it is it something that 
that is magical about their collaborators at the God, I keep saying words weird collaborators, uh, colla- collaborators at the time, which, you know, notably Matthew Weiner is not a part of this. Right. And Weiner himself ended up creating his own fantastic uh, TV series that a lot of people are like Sopranos one Mad Men two, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just Me. like, th- <laughs> yeah, that happens quite a bit. And it's just like, holy shit. You got to remember that Weiner was part. Now, I don't know how how involved Weiner was from the outset. And, you know, it, it, it all depends on where you think, you know, these high points are. But, you know, he had other collaborators. Uh, God damn it. Uh, you know. <laughs> Collaborator retrievers. <laughs> uh, other writers, other other, you know, people that were kind of making up his his writing room, his staff and stuff like that. So, you know, it is. Yes. David Chase was the mind behind it. But David Chase also, with one other uh, co-writer, created this himself. So, you know, we kind of get to see, like, is it is it like a step off? Is it a beautiful, you know, thing that just happened for, what is it? What, what is this, 1999 to 2007? So, yeah. s- s- eight years, you know? W- was it just that beautiful thing that lasted for eight years? And then, you know... And and I've asked actors this, I've asked directors this, like, hey, if you don't make another great thing besides the thing that you made in the past, is that, like, would you still see your career as a success? You know, it's like, hey, I gave eight years of great television. What the fuck else do you want from me? You know, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of other movies that sort of hit this sort of strange like almost feels like fan fiction um my husband and i were coming up with them before and of course now i can't remember anything i think pretty much anything that does the wizard of oz universe and just fails miserably <laughs> so and the there's green so powerful. many of them yeah basically i mean not well, everything I mean, I mean, a, a lot of this i mean you've Jesus, I mean, Brian, I could I could throw you a softball here and just mention the Wachowskis, right? Like, you know, um, did they? But did they do that, it? That, I'm talking like a. Okay, I guess like you, the issue you're talking is, about a prequel. I'm yeah, I'm thinking like something like you know, this is not whatever you think about those fucking terrible sequels, they clearly come after the other ones and involve all the same characters played by the same actors. Like mm-hmm. I'm talking like something like this, you know, where there is a level of disconnect that makes you go like, you know, you could have just done a new thing. Like, I don't know. It's it's it, they're like, you know, the Fantastic Beasts feel more like that, where it's like, oh, sure. I don't want to. Well, it's not so much a prequel. It's a story in the universe, you know, yeah, like yeah. Yeah. The, the, solo style. There, there is there is this constant question of whether any prequel actually works. Right. Like there is that as well. And I think honestly, the only ones that kind of work for me out of all of them are uh, the uh, Planet of the Apes. And that's only because that that thing is just a loosey goosey like connection anyways. It it wasn't like one person. The 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 the, they're not. 
I don't know the best way to put this. Like they're not, they're clearly like rebooting, right? Like they're not saying that they are going to end with Charlton Heston, right? Sure. But they are leading to that. They're leading to a version of that. Prometheus. Oh, yes. Yeah. Nobody needed to fucking know the origins of that. Sometimes, you know, you just want to sort of have yeah, something. And that's, that's another uh, like God figure creator. Right. And Ridley, who made Alien, right, which, you know, it may or may not be the thing that draws most people to that franchise. Right. I, I think clearly it's is Cameron's Aliens that kind of gets the bombast and everything like that. Um, but yeah, I think I think if you look at Alien and then you look at Prometheus, you're like, are these the two same directors? Like, what yeah. the fuck is going on? Even here? Alien Covenant, you're still like, all right, well, I guess I just, I just I, sometimes I, you don't want to know. I, right. I don't, like I what I liked about The Sopranos is that there was something a little mysterious about the past and that so much of the action is or like uh, some so much of the mythologizing is very much mythologizing that i Mm -hmm. i wanted to under i like these characters as unreliable narrators and the lies that they've told themselves uh to to you know live the lives that they choose to live i mean i'm worried about the game of thrones prequels for this exact reason like there's something (laughs) about the past like 400 years earlier yeah Yeah, but i mean they're 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 quite a bit earlier but the but Game go, of Thrones is very um, is very centered in the the mythos of Westeros, like mm-hmm. the uh, I'm forgetting it, not Viserion, but like there's um, there's so much history. Like that's what kind of what makes yeah. this universe work is that it's really centered in its own history, and I think that's what makes Sopranos work well. It's that it's centered in its uh, in its perception of its own history, these characters and their relationships with one another. Like sometimes I just don't want to see how the sausage is made. I want to, so you I want to like enjoy a, uh, that. You a want Mad the Men prequel series that has Roger Sterling fighting in World War II and his dad. Oh and Christ. Bert Cooper. No, none of that. <laughs> We're not, nothing about Don and the Korean war. Oh my God. We've already gotten plenty. Dan- Daniel, what, what about you? What, what do you, what are you itching to see? Uh, you know, y- you're, you're, what is it called? Head cannon, like unspooled. Yeah, the is that you don't know, and that's that's what it is. Like the things sure. you, the things that you hunger for most, almost certainly are the things that are going to end up falling on their face most frequently, and because you invest so much in the telling of the story and in your own version of it, and in the thing that you love, that whatever leads up to it, if it's a little bit less than it you're going to view it as being substantially less than it. Like what I would use as an example of a, of a surprisingly good prequel is Bates motel is the, the Mm. prequel to to psycho, Mm. which another Vera for me, another Vera for me, which is a 100% completely, totally unnecessary prequel that tells a story that I had no interest at all in knowing. And if you watch the first I would say season and a half of it, you go, I don't know why you think you're telling me this story. It's not interesting. But at around halfway through the second season, the writers legitimately figure out what the story is that they want to tell. And if you watch the last two seasons of Bates Motel, 
It's the prequel you didn't know you wanted. It's the answers that you didn't know you cared about that actually comes out being entirely heartbreaking. And you just, you can't know that the thing is the thing that you crave until it actually scratches the itch. Because if it's just some big question, the answer is not going to be satisfying for you. If it's just Amy Sherman Palladino saying, uh, I know what the last four words, five words of Gilmore Girls is slash are, inevitably all you're going to be doing when she brings it back for four episodes is keying in on those four words and nothing could ever lead up to that. Nothing could ever live up to that. Whereas if it's a thing that you don't know that you care about, then you can actually just tell a story that happens to intersect with the world. And I feel like most people don't understand that they have to have the hook. And so with the game of Thrones prequels, they're going to either rise or fall on whether they tell an interesting story on their own basis. But you also know that there are going to be people over in the corner insisting that you bring up character X, Y, or Z that you have you know, whatever the Easter eggs and tie-ins are so that the people who don't really care about the general storytelling, but cared about Game of Thrones are going to feel as if that's what they were there for. And so I have a hard time imagining how they could be successful because it's not an easy thing to do to tell a Game of Thrones story. Look at the last two seasons of Game of Thrones. <laughs> and this is why I'm excited uh, to announce my prequel series to the 2007 Fox TV show Drive, which I think is going to give you all the prequel that you never know you wanted about are that. You getting, are you getting Emma Stone involved or not? 100%, yes. Everyone's okay, coming back. But no, so to me, like the, the things that end up being the best TV shows are the ones that are sort of self-contained. Like Halt and Catch Fire is a brilliant TV show because it is wholly cumulative within itself. And whatever lives the characters have before or after, you know they exist, but I don't have questions about them. I would never want the people involved with that show to go and give me backstory details or to revisit the show. It's a perfect four-season show. Sopranos. You don't want to see what they're all up to in the age of TikTok? I don't at all. <laughs> and Sopranos, I love the finale. And I don't want to get into the debate of whether Tony dies at the end of the finale. But, but I feel me, the same way, yeah. To me, it's satisfying. And even something like Breaking Bad, part of why I didn't need El Camino was that Breaking Bad went to so much effort to give a satisfying resolution. And then, you know, Better Call Saul... Okay, so there. Yes. Oh, that's a yeah, great one. Yes. Another one. Yes. 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 Better call Saul. Okay. That's a fucking. Oh, but that's another one where I didn't want to know. I don't want to know the the man behind the curtain. Yeah, and but yet, you like it now, right, Robin? No, I I did not complete it. I did not uh, watch it after first wow. season because I just oh, don't care. It's gotten uh, so much better, and it's gotten it's, so it's much got better so by, by not being answer driven and by not mm -hmm. being a we have to get to the events of Breaking Bad and I'm so nervous about the last season that they're going to feel the need to tie things in more as opposed to what they've done which is just make a beautiful character study about a couple very very tragically flawed characters who maybe we know things about what's going to happen to them later but it's completely its own thing it's not the story that they that you thought they were going to be telling if you tuned in in season one. It's the story that Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan wrote themselves into. And that's why it's so good. It doesn't yeah. feel the need to be um, 
the question answering Easter egg machine a lot of the time. And one so, of yeah, the, I, I wish I, I just come up with that earlier. <laughs> I, one of the things that I like, well, the, so one of the reasons I didn't think of Better Call Saul is because it is so good and so much its own thing now that I am like kind of forget that it's a Breaking Bad prequel, even though it's, yeah. it's not. It it's a Saul Goodman its prequel. And like the thing that gets me about that show every now and then, and this is kind of what you were referring to, Daniel, is like it's it's um I'm watching it and I'm just like, oh, man, like I love this couple. They're so great together. And then there's like a moment where you remember like, oh, right. Yep. I know that at the, uh, the one thing I know from the other show is that he is not with her. Yep. Why? Like what happened? But the show itself isn't teasing you like that. It's not like an SNL sketch where it's like, oh, we know this person's going to die. Here they are. Or like a uh, hot tub time machine when it's like, how is the dude going to lose his arm? Like <laughs> the show itself isn't like, oh, there's a guy with a gun and he's going to get up. Oh, nope. Nope. That's not it. Oh, she's allergic to peanuts and she's about to eat a peanut. Nope. Nope. That's not it. Like the show is only it, it is very present tense focused on what's happening right now and so it it is up to you to remember like right this is not where they end up there is no happy ending here yeah it's it's a classic hitchcock thing right where where the gun is underneath the table right that's that's the the bomb is underneath the table right that's the expression so it's like okay for for savvy fans of breaking bad they will tune in and understand that is that ticking time bomb right it's like oh fuck okay when is it going to go off the rails how is it going to go off the rails you know um and so there is that kind of constant looming threat over it but in the meantime it's such an enjoyable show from episode to episode that you kind of you forget for 30 minutes you know Mm -hmm. and then you kind of remember and you're like oh man fuck like this guy's not going to be happy you know (laughs) no there is no happiness and in the Doug. case of the movie, it decides to sort of, going back to the bomb under the table, that's kind of where the last scene of the movie that we stopped mm-hmm. talking about a long time ago, <laughs> <laughs> where, where it brings in the theme song and it brings back the voiceover, it becomes the ha ha ha, remember the bomb under the table. And I'm I'm like, I'm terrified that that's the thing that uh, that breaking, that Better Call Saul is going to feel the need to do in its last couple episodes, that it's going to feel the need to bring Walter White back into the story. I don't need that. I don't want that. It's not Walter White's story. It's freaking, you know, it's it's Jimmy McGill's story and then it's Saul Goodman's story. And so this sort of decides at the end, oh, right, this is going to be a Tony Soprano origin story, even though it Which is really bananas. wasn't. Yeah, because he's like barely a character for most of this. Like it's it's so it's so weird that they went that way. Yeah. Any final thoughts about this movie? Uh, I feel like I feel I, like I got little... I got one thing. Okay. Um. So you know this is this is David Chase kind of at his finest. I feel like when. The why can't I remember his name? I think his name's his name's not Tony. Uh, he he plays the tough guy in all the movies and all the TV shows. Uh, why can't I think of him? Uh, Punisher. Oh oh oh, Bernthal. Yeah, John Bernthal. When he is talking to his wife and having that argument, and turns over while they're driving down the highway. And shoots her hair. 
I about lost it. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You just shot your wife? And well, no, he fires the gun her, into the air, I, I, right? I, no, he, no, he fires the hair. in the hair. He shoots through her hair. And I about, like, that was one of those sight gags that I was just like, fuck. Because he understands what he's playing with, right? It's a mob movie. Women die mercilessly all the time in these in these TV shows and movies and stuff like that. So it wouldn't be unexpected for him to do that, right? Mm. But the fact that he didn't, that he actually just shot through her hair, that he knows it, she knows it, and she just kind of turns to him and gives him this look, and I just about died. And that was one of my favorite sequences in this entire film. And, you know, if if I can have those two and a half minutes of screen time <laughs> for the rest of this movie, okay, fine. Like, fuck no, it. No, that's I not guess, a reasonable, guess, that's not a reasonable exchange rate <laughs> in my eyes. <laughs> But that that sequence alone was one of my favorite things. Uh, on top of yes, I will say it again, Robin. Uh, the the prison sequences with Ray Liotta. Oh my lord! I I I am legitimately shocked that you weren't okay with Ray Liotta in prison. We're not getting what? into it. I just it's just like that's the one good part of this movie. It's like the one constant. It's like the one through line. It's the one thing that does it. No, the one constant is the fake nose. I could have looked <laughs> at it all day. It was beautiful. It was yeah. beautiful nose since the hours. It was it was a great fake nose. And luckily, like I you know, it's funny actually that this was brought up that I was like, Oh, that's Edie Falco's nose. And then I was like, Oh no, no, that's 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 Mama Soprano's yep, yep. nose. And I was like, Oh, it's yeah, both but- of their noses. Uh-huh. Oh, Who do you marry? I know, exactly. <laughs> and his then, fucking mother. It actually did remind me just now that uh, one thing I did really like about Vera Farmiga's performance is that her New Jersey accent was super authentic. Uh, I thought she sounded great. I also know she's from New Jersey. North Jersey. So, right? What? North oh, uh, I think so. Yeah. She's from a Ukrainian community, and I forget where she grew up, but I thought she brought that authenticity that I thought, you know, other, uh, some of the other performances felt a little more like spoofy or like impersonations as opposed to acting like the guy who played Silvio uh, that just, well, it was the most entertaining thing on screen. It also just really took me out of the movie. Hmm. I forget the actor's name. Uh, John Majaro. And Thank yeah, you. That's, that's a weird performance. Uh, Billy Magnuson as Polly Walnut's it's just a stunt. It's wouldn't this be an odd totally. thing for us to decide to do as opposed to let's cast an actor and attempt to make Polly into an actual character, even though he was always, you know, well, he he had nuance over the course of the series, but he started off as a comic relief character on the show. And I, I would have liked if they'd actually given real insight into some of how those people ticked when they were at a younger age as opposed to ha 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 they ticked in basically the exact same way 30 years exactly that's like there was there was a guy who looked like he was maybe 30 and he had like old man scowl already was that silvio i don't it was the guy it was the last guy that dickie talked to before he got got that was silvio okay yeah he he but he already had that kind of like i've seen it in the guys that my grandpa was friends with you know like just a yeah yeah, exactly. I mean, the character, what pissed me off about that character was that it felt like the actor was playing him as the penguin. 
<laughs> it was just so <laughs> off to me. Wait, was that Billy Magnuson? Played no, Polly Walnuts. Oh, oh, okay. The, the, Billy Magnuson was the one who got uh, blood on his uh, on his jacket when oh, they tortured yeah. the guy in the auto shop. That's um, crazy. That he does. I you know that doesn't look like him. It didn't look well, like. Yeah. Him. <laughs> well, exactly. That's the whole gag. Doesn't look they like him. A lot of latex on him as well. Uh, <laughs> whereas with Silvio, they just needed a, a hairpiece for the most part. And yeah, I just you have this opportunity to take characters who are cartoonish in the series and give us some of their origins. And I don't know that they did that at I, all with Polly and Silvio. No, so. but with Junior, I feel like they did. You know, he's, you yeah, know, that, he's got the bald head well. and the glasses, but he's clearly like a man who is still slightly vital. Yeah, it just feels weird to, because, you know, when you be, when you get older, you start, your your certain aspects of you get exaggerated, you know, and that just is how you become that cartoonish thing. And I just feel like it's weird for him to already have that hair and that scowl when he's that young. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> it's just very exactly. strange. It's like well, it's uh, like, it's like those see... jokes like Wilford Brimley was 30 when he shot Cocoon or whatever. It's just like. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like uh, oftentimes um, when you have a flashback of a character, the character looks exactly like the adult version with the same haircut and the same color shirt. And I always find that bizarre because, you know, some people start out fat and get skinny and vice versa. And some people have have completely different hair. You know, if you have a character that um has a page boy in adulthood like why would they have a page boy at the age of seven it just uh, doesn't make sense yeah you already figured that's how i felt i saw a picture of myself (laughs) in high school today and i thought i was in elementary school at first and i was uh, (laughs) i was like oh i finally got into that point in my life like you know used to be like oh i was just skinny then and now i looked at it i was like jesus christ had like had puberty hit me and yeah it had oh man anyway we're all gonna die one day um Yes. Yeah. Memento Mori. Speaking of which, uh, I hated this movie, but uh, if anyone out there wants to stream something that is good, uh, Midnight Mass on Netflix is fantastic. Oh. The Hamish Linklater show. Yes. Uh, written and directed by Mike Flanagan. Flanagan? Flanagan? Flanagan. Uh, Flanagan. Yeah. Flanagan. I'm really tired, Flanagan. Bill. I just... <laughs> anyway, that's uh, it's an incredible Dan, show. Dan, you reviewed that, right? I did, and I, I didn't love it, but I liked it a lot, and I appreciated how committed Mike Flanagan was to all of the nuttiness in that show. As a practicing Catholic, I fucking loved that show. <laughs> he never shuts up about it. No, yeah, I know. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, you know, with the folk horror, and then, like, I just, I always love, like, you know, let's let's take this to its uh, literal extreme. And I was just like, yes, give me more. This is amazing. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's on Netflix. Definitely did that. Yeah, <laughs> did. Oh man, I w- there was a legitimately a point when I was in the middle of watching this movie, and I was like, oh, I wonder if it's it's like you know Sunday night. I wonder if it's too late to tell everyone we should just talk about Midnight Mass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it definitely was. But anyway, uh, Daniel Feinberg, thank you so much for joining us and uh, putting up with us and uh, talking about uh, the Many Saints of Newark with us. Thanks for having me. I, I like I said, no one else was giving me the opportunity to think my way through the movie and i appreciated the chance to do it yes and you are always welcome back uh whenever we have any tv movie crossover events we'd love to have you back or if you ever just or see a movie anything and you're like or hey, anything yeah. really no let's let's keep him in his silo let's <laughs> <laughs> back anyway. in your cage um robin Barr, what are we talking about next week uh james bond Ooh, really, really? no time to die it's gonna be my first james bond since uh 
the Halle Berry one, which I always forget the name. Holy fuck. Yeah, I saw that. So in you missed you missed all <laughs> of you his? missed all of the Craig. Well, that movie sucked so hard. I never wanted to they see another one. They changed care. They changed actors. They that's same. They they brought directors. back the guy who did the Goldeneye. <laughs> yeah, Goldeneye's great. Goldeneye's and good. they'll probably bring him back when he, they decide to reboot the franchise. Yeah, again. when they finally wise up and uh, cast Chiwetel Ejiofor as James Bond, they'll bring back Martin Campbell. Female yeah. Bond. Female Bond. Now. Bondette. <laughs> Bondette. If they call Benedette. her Jamie Bondette, if they just really <laughs> lean into it, I'm totally here Jemay for it. Jamie Bondette. Oh, Jesus. Anyway, okay. um, so this is this went from like a fine episode to a terrible episode real quick. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Join us next week when we talk about No Time to Die. Uh, the real question for that episode is, will Brian have time to see it? And will so, Brian have time to die before this movie comes out? I was no at a, time. I was, uh, you, you know, I, I said it in kind of a not joking, but like, I'm sure I'll be able to make it work, but I don't know if I can. But legitimately, like I went to my first beer, wine and liquor festival. And I had to sleep for like three days afterwards. Like it's a it's a mm-hmm. surprise to me that I was even able to see many Saints in Newark, and it was literally playing on my TV, and it was still like a struggle to find the time and the energy to watch it. So uh, we'll see. We'll see if I can get out to a theater to watch get James some Bond fucking do sleep. some stuff. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so look forward to that. Uh, let's tell the fine. Well, no, no. Before we do that, don't forget to go to mubi.com/slash/filmstage for a free thirty day trial of movie. mubi.com/slash film stage and uh don't forget to go to patreon.com slash film stage show to give us your money now we can tell the fine people at home where to find us online uh between now and the next time uh so long as the social medias remain up and running which uh sometimes they're not sometimes they're not sometimes there's a dns error yeah sometimes sometimes uh randomly it seems like the url for facebook is back on sale Oh, man. Anyway, uh, so Danny Feinberg, why don't you tell people where they can find your stuff online? You can find me on Twitter at The Fine Print. Uh, that's F-I-E-N, Print. Uh, and you can listen to my podcast, TV's Top 5, which is available at all of your finer podcasting outlets. Awesome. And uh, Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CableBFG and then also on instagram at billstagram and i have a couple of quick things uh a a prequel that is unnecessary but still works x-men first class oh love yeah that. no unnecessary but i do love that movie <laughs> especially the um, score great score yeah great score great performances holy shit michael fassbender yeah. um daniel i have a question what are your thoughts on rubicon I love um, I love Rubicon right up until the penultimate episode. If it had ended at the penultimate episode, it would be one of the great all time one season shows. I think the finale is a total mess, but up until the finale, I really like me some Rubicon. James that's, that's what we like to hear. That's what we like to hear. I haven't seen Rubicon yet. Is it on a thing that I can see it on? Oh God, it's got to be on like AMC Plus. But I'm trying to think if it's anywhere else. It's uh, yeah, you know, it, it wasn't really hugely successful for AMC. No, it was not. But there are people who love it. You know, Arliss Howard, wonderful performance. Michael Christopher, wonderful performance. I've always wondered why James Badgedale didn't get more leading man roles. Yeah, right up till the finale, I, I love Rubicon. 
So this thing says Amazon Prime Video Premium Subscription. So it's possible that I may be able to watch it because uh, I do love James Badgedale and, uh, oh, Dallas Roberts is in this too. Yes, yes, very good. Uh, you also have some episodes of The Sopranos to watch, I hear. Yes, sir. Yeah, but the Rubicon feels more accessible because it's Do your homework season. first. Fine, <laughs> fine. We will uh, once we will all come back to review this movie again once I've seen The Sopranos, so we can uh, really see oh, what I, I feel. Um, about. Excellent, thank you. That's so I'll see like, you all oh in six God. years. <laughs> Mother of God, uh, Robin, have you have you plugged yourself yet? I can't even remember. No, not yet. Uh, okay. You can find me at r o b y n b a h r on the Twitters, and uh, you can sometimes find my writing at uh, the Hollywood Reporter. All right. Uh, as for myself, uh, you can find all my stuff at my personal site, BrianJRowan.com. Uh, I'm on all the social medias at Brian J. Rowan. And uh, yeah, you can find all my writing and every episode of this year podcast by going to uh, thefilmstage.com. And um, don't forget to go to SchmidtSpirits.com to learn more about the distillery that is uh, taking over more and more in my life and exhausting me and seeing where you can uh, try samples of us for free at uh, various festivals happening around the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area. That is it for today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next time. Since the blues walked in a town.